All right, well, good morning. Good to see you all. That little video clip was about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering that we're going to be taking up in a few weeks. And just to tell you a little bit about the Lottie Moon, uh, before the cooperative program was put together, the cooperative program is basically um, how Southern Baptist churches all across the nation, all across the world, get together, pull their resources together uh, to fund the cause of the gospel, the kingdom work. Before that was established, which was before any of us were born, the missionaries who were serving on the field would have to come home and travel from church to church to church. And how often do churches meet? Not very often. They'd have to travel to these churches to raise support before they could go back to the mission field and share with the people who had never heard the gospel. So while they are busy raising the support, they were not in the field able to share the gospel. And so through the cooperative program and the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, those missionaries that we support are able to stay on the mission field, to stay where they are serving and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and still have their needs met, their physical and material needs met. So that's just a little video clip to share one way how one of our missionaries named Brady is using football to get the word out of the good news of Jesus Christ. And you can help support that in the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. All right, well, children, you guys can be dismissed to Children's Church. And as we begin this Christmas season, it's appropriate that we find ourselves in the book of Luke, where Luke records for us why Jesus even came to this earth in the first place. Christmas, we celebrate the fact that Jesus came, that God came to earth as a man. But why did he come? Well, he came because of the cross. And today we look at Luke's account of the crucifixion. And my plan is to cover 80 verses today. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not joking. 80 verses. Right, so we better get started, right? If you have a Bible, or if you have a Bible app, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 22. We're going to begin at the end of Luke chapter 22. And we're discussing the cross today. The cross is the most widely recognized symbol of Christianity. Right, you see crosses today on church buildings, church websites. You see crosses on jewelry. You see crosses everywhere. And when you see a cross displayed, you, you know it was put on display by a Christian. Right? The cross wasn't put on display by a Muslim or a Jew or a Buddhist or a Hindu. The cross is rightly the most widely recognized symbol of the Christian faith. Because the cross is unique to Christianity. And the cross is the very core, the very center, the very crux of the Christian faith. The cross has become like a brand logo for the church. And everything that we believe hinges on Jesus' death and his resurrection. So that's the cross during our time. The cross today is this symbol of our faith and core beliefs. But what was the cross during the time of Jesus and his disciples? Simply stated, the cross was 
a method of execution, a method to kill condemned criminals, to put them to death in a horrendous, torturous, shameful manner. I want to explain to you a little bit of the physical suffering that someone who was crucified would endure. I'll try to keep it PG, PG-13 perhaps, even though it was certainly an R-rated event. When men were crucified, they were either nailed or roped to a cross in such a position that in order for them to breathe, they would have to literally lift themselves up on those nails or on those ropes to catch one breath. And this could go on for hours. And often because men who were crucified were beaten and scourged beforehand, and even on the cross, their flesh was exposed, they were bleeding. And because this would go on for hours, it has been recorded that vultures would sometimes come and begin feeding off of the men's flesh while they were even still alive. Finally, once enough blood had poured out of their wounds and they were left with no more strength to pull themselves up on those nails, their lungs would fill up with fluid and they would suffocate to death, literally drown. And so one way to expedite a person's death was to break their legs, and sometimes they did that. But sometimes they would try to prolong the death of a criminal And so instead of breaking their legs so they could no longer lift up, they would nail the person to a little seat on the cross, a little plank that was there on the cross. Because men wanted to die once they had reached their stage and would oftentimes try to take their bodies and throw it off of the seat so they could no longer lift up. But once they were nailed to that seat, they had no choice. Under such pain, the body could not control itself. Men would known to defecate on themselves. And this agony and pain of crucifixion was so horrible that it, it couldn't even be described with adequate words. So they made up a word to describe it. The word excruciating means from the cross. And if this wasn't enough torture, men were usually crucified naked and in public. So anyone of dignity, as they walked by someone being crucified, they would, they would turn and look away. They wouldn't look upon the cross. It was too shameful. Other lowlifes might gather around the cross and make fun of the person dying, spit upon them, mock them. Crucifixion was usually done in the equivalent of what might be today a uh, the parking lot of a Walmart or maybe a bus stop. It was done in a very public place because it served as a warning to others who might be tempted to commit such crimes. It was a horrendous way for criminals to die. And this was done to God. How? How? How could that happen? What led Jesus, the God-man, to be crucified on a cross? Well, do you remember back at the very beginning of the book of Luke when he's writing his introduction? He's writing to a man named Theophilus, and he says, Theophilus, 
I'm writing to you. I'm giving you an orderly account of what has happened so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Both then and now, the fact that Jesus was crucified on a cross is undisputed. Theophilus had been taught that Jesus died on a cross. He knew that, but it was not an easy fact for him to believe. Why? Because the cross in Theophilus' day, in Luke's day, was not an adorned symbol, but was a means of execution. So this fact that Jesus was crucified needed explanation. Why was he killed? What charges had been brought against him? Who wanted him dead? It's been said that Luke's entire book was written to answer these questions of why Jesus died. When the end of chapter 22 and in the whole chapter of 23, Luke records for us Jesus' trial and crucifixion. And here we gather the facts that explain how it is that the Son of God was put to death on a cross. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 22. And we'll begin in verse 47. And to again remind you of the scene, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there at night with 11 of his 12 disciples. Judas is off about to betray him. Jesus has been praying earnestly. He has been in great agony because he knows what is about to take place. And he's in so much agony that Scripture records that great drops of blood he was sweating and were, drawing, were falling on the ground. And let me remind you that the cross, the crucifixion that he was about to endure, was not the worst of Jesus' suffering. The worst of Jesus' suffering was that while on the cross, he was going to endure the full wrath of God. Jesus had, been, had just found his disciples sleeping after he rises from prayer. He's in great agony, and he's telling them to get up and pray. And then we read in verse 47 that there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So Jesus, he's not caught by surprise here. He knows Jesus' plan. He knows what's about to happen. Verse 49, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed them. Jesus not resisting. In the next verse we learn who this crowd is that comes to capture Jesus. It says, then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So here we learn that the people who wanted Jesus dead were the religious leaders in Israel. The chief priests, the officers of the temple, the scribes, the Pharisees. Why? Why would those who had committed their careers to serving God, why would they want Jesus dead? Let me give you some background. The religious leaders of Israel 
They were all about keeping God's law. The problem was they misunderstood God's law. They thought that they could keep it within their own power. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, God warned Israel that there would be false prophets who would come onto the scene, false prophets who would be able to make predictions that came true, false prophets who would be able to do miraculous signs and win the favor of the people, but would then use their power and fame to lead God's people astray and to serve other gods. And so God warns them of this, and he tells them in Deuteronomy 13, 5, what should be done to these false prophets. It says, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now what had Jesus been doing? He had done many miraculous signs. He had made many predictions which were coming true. He taught as one speaking for God. Jesus was a prophet. But he was much more than a prophet. He renounced the practices the rule-keeping, works-based salvation that the religious leaders of Israel had proposed. And Jesus claimed that he himself was the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's why the religious leaders rejected him. Because he claimed to be more than a prophet. He claimed to be the Son of God. We see this explicitly in the last verse in chapter 22. So let me briefly fill you in on the narrative that takes place. So after Jesus is captured in the garden, he's led away to the high priest's house. And evidently, most of his disciples split and ran. Because Luke only records for us one of his disciples who follows Jesus and his prosecutors. That one disciple is Peter. And, and then even Peter, while he's huddled around this fire trying to stay warm in the cool night's air, denies that he even knows Jesus. He denies knowing Jesus three times, even in the very sight of Jesus. Well, then let's pick up in verse 63. And notice the irony in these verses. Verse 63, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So some of the irony here is that they blindfolded Jesus, even though he had already foreseen all that was going to take place. 
They blaspheme Jesus, meaning they mock him with crude and irreverent jeers. And so when they blaspheme Jesus, they are blaspheming God, yet they accuse Jesus of blaspheming God. The religious leaders rejected Jesus because they thought that he was leading their people away from God, that he was leading their people astray, but Jesus was in fact God who had come to his people. So it is because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, meaning that he claimed to be God, that the Jewish leaders wanted him dead. But there was a problem. The Jewish leaders didn't have any authority, didn't have any power to execute anyone. They couldn't put someone to death because Rome was in charge. So, pick up in, verse, in chapter 23, verse 1. It says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Pilate was the Roman authority in Jerusalem. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They're trying to make Jesus an enemy of Rome so that he will be put to death. But we already know from reading Luke's book that Jesus did not forbid the people to render what was Caesar's. He already told them in chapter 20, verse 25, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. So this is a lie that these people are accusing Jesus of. Verse 3, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been an enemy with each other. Verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. 
I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. What's the theme in those verses? Did you pick up on it? What's the repeated theme? It's that Jesus was innocent. Completely innocent. Over and over again, Pilate is saying, look, I've heard your charges against them. I've questioned him myself. I've examined him in front of you. And I don't find this man guilty of anything. And neither did Herod. Jesus' innocence is the point that Luke is stressing to us in this entire chapter. Seven times throughout this chapter, Jesus has declared that he's innocent. If you fast forward to verse 47, these are the last words spoken at the crucifixion. They serve as the final word, the final commentary on the event. And it says there that now when a centurion, and a centurion was a, a Roman commander. He commanded about a hundred soldiers in the Roman army. So he was probably the one who was in charge of the soldiers who had crucified Jesus. And after he sees Jesus die, he sees what takes place. He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Jesus was innocent. He lived a perfect life. So how was it that he was crucified? Well, did you notice how pushy the religious leaders were? Did you notice how demanding they were to have their way? No matter who was questioning Jesus, whether it was Pilate or Herod, the religious leaders were there accusing Jesus. It says that they were urgent. It says that they cried out in unison. It says that they shouted loud cries. And so Pilate gives in and he gives Jesus over to their will. Think back to last week if you were here when we were looking at Jesus in the garden, Luke chapter 22, where Jesus is submissive to the Father's will. Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Compare that to this chapter, where the religious leaders are so demanding to have their way, their will be done, that Pilate just gives up and says, all right, he's yours. Do with him whatever you please. To me, this serves as a strong warning for us that we should be humble. And we should recognize that our will, our way, might not always be the best way. So must you always have your way? Must you always have your way? The most terrible crime ever committed in all of history was the murder of God's Son. 
And he was killed at the will of those whom God had entrusted to lead his people. They thought that they were serving God's will. And in the end they were, but not in any way that they had thought. Church, the the loudest voice in the church is not always the right voice. The loudest voice saying the church needs to do this or we need to do that is not always the right voice. Often it's just the squeaky wheel. Someone who's trying to have their way. But God commands us to seek Him. Implying that the direction He wants us to go is not always going to be just apparent. He commands us to be still, to listen. And church, understand that the greatest gift that we have for determining God's direction for us is His Word. God has already spoken. And any impression that He gives to an individual is not going to contradict what He has already spoken and revealed in His Word. So whose voice do you most often listen to? Who has persuasive power in your life? Well, Jesus was put to death by the strong will of the people because he claimed to be the Son of God. That's the answer to why Jesus was crucified from the human perspective. But the ultimate answer for why Jesus was crucified, was put to death on a cross, must be answered from God's viewpoint. Why would God allow this to happen? Why did Jesus show no resistance? Well, let's read the lengthy account, beginning of verse 26 of Jesus' death. Luke chapter 23, verse 26 says, And they led him away. They seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Verse 32, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, There they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. 
The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's noon to 3 p.m. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. What do we notice Jesus doing even in death? As his blood is pouring out on the cross, he continues to pour himself out for others. He continues to minister for others. He continues to prophesy as the women to the women who are mourning. He continues to intercess, to pray for those who are killing him, that God would forgive them. He continues to save as he promised the criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus continues to minister while on the cross because the cross is his ministry. The cross is why he came to this earth. The cross was God's plan to rescue sinners. The people's plan was to punish Jesus instead of Barabbas. They chose to substitute Jesus for Barabbas. But God's plan was to substitute Jesus for you and for me. We deserved God's wrath, but Jesus took our place. So God was not just allowing His Son to be crucified. God the Father, Son, and Spirit planned that Jesus would be crucified. You see, if any human is ever to stand before a holy and perfect God and not be banished from His presence forever, there must be an atonement made for the wrongs that we have committed against that holy God. Amends need to be made. Payment needs to be met. And the only acceptable payment is for Jesus to take our place to bear our sin and to give us his righteousness. So here's the deal. You need to accept the fact that you have been created by a personal God 
who will hold you accountable for every word, every thought, and every deed. You need to accept the fact that you have not lived as this God intended for you to live. You need to accept the fact that you can't make it up to God on your own. And so you must believe that Jesus came and did for you what you could not do for yourself. Jesus paid the price of your sins. You need to believe this good news that I'm telling you. And you need to confess that you have wronged God, that you have been wrong, and to ask Him to forgive you. And the good news is, He will. God will forgive you because Jesus has paid the price for you. Too many people today have this idea that everybody who dies goes to heaven. But it's my job to tell you that they don't. Only those who recognize that Jesus is king and honor him as such will go to heaven. The rest go to hell. Eternal separation from God. That's not a fun message to proclaim, but in that message is life. See, the criminal who was dying beside Jesus, he, he understood this. And this is perhaps the most amazing conversion story in all of history. Here is a man who's hanging on a cross, a criminal condemned to die. And he looks beside him and he sees Jesus also hanging on the cross Condemned to die. And Jesus is beat up. Jesus has been punched, kicked, beaten, scourged, flogged, whipped, pierced, and now crucified. Jesus is hard to look at. He's so bleeding and bruised that he could hardly even be recognized. He's struggling to breathe, he's suffering. And this man sees in Jesus the King of Heaven. He knows that Jesus is a king about to inherit a kingdom. The man doesn't presume that he's going to be a part of that kingdom. He doesn't presume that he's going to be there. He knows he doesn't deserve to be there, so he just asks Jesus. He just says, Jesus, will you just remember me? when you inherit your kingdom. And the good news is that Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So how will you respond to the cross? Everyone in this passage in Luke chapter 23 is responding Right? People go home beating their chests. No one is unaffected by this scene. So what's your response? Is Jesus king? Or are you determined to have your way? Are you determined to still be king of your life? 
The cross is rightly the symbol for the Christian faith. Because everything hinges on your response to the cross. But let me ask you this. Is the cross the label, the brand that you are willing to wear? Because let me make this one clarification. God substituted Jesus' innocence for our guilt. Okay, Jesus took the punishment that we all deserved, and he offers to us the reward that only he deserved. That was God's substitute. That's God's exchange. But God did not substitute Jesus' cross for our cross. God did not substitute Jesus' cross for our cross. Living your life for Jesus does mean that you will get eternal life, but it doesn't mean you're going to have a comfortable life here and now. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. He said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. As a follower of Jesus, you can expect a hard road. You can expect to suffer, to be ridiculed, to be mocked. But such suffering is an opportunity to identify with the Savior to grow in your likeness of Jesus, to showcase to others that Jesus truly is worthy to be number one. And we can face such suffering, we can face such hardship, because like Jesus, we commit our lives into the caring hands of a loving and gracious Heavenly Father. We can bear our cross because we know a paradise with Him is awaiting. And we can bear our cross because Luke chapter 23 is not the last chapter in the book of Luke. In fact, as Luke ends chapter 23, he leaves us hanging. There's a man named Joseph from Arimathea who comes and he takes Jesus' body and he asks Pilate, Pilate, can I, can I care for this body? Can I give it a proper burial? And so he buries it in a rich man's borrowed tomb. But the Sabbath was about to begin and the people were commanded to rest on the Sabbath. And so as Jesus' body is laid there, there's, there's nothing more that's done with it. In verse 55, it says that the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Well, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. We're left expecting them to return to the tomb. And in fact, they would. And what they would find is that what Jesus had predicted came true. The tomb was empty, and he had been raised. Now, to hear that story, you're going to have to come back next week. 
But the question for you today is, how will you respond to the cross? Let's pray. Father, your love never fails us. And Father, the outpouring of your love as displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ is such that we struggle to put words to express it. But Father, I pray that we would see from your word in your passage that, that Jesus is king and is worthy for us to live our lives for. We thank you for the price that he paid for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. We thank you for the paradise that he offers to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand. And this is our time of response.